We are 22 West Radio. 22 West Radio is 22 West Media.com and 88.1 FM KKJZ AC3 Long Beach, Los Angeles. And you are now listening to Foodology Radio, a student run radio show where you can hear your science and nutrition, receive dietary tips, have your own nutrition questions answered, and so much more. Disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational purposes only. We are nutrition students, not medical professionals. This information should not be substituted for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Before making any substantial changes to your diet or lifestyle, please consult a physician, registered dietitian, or other medical professionals. Welcome to Foodology Radio. This is your host, Michelle. And I'm your other host, Aaron. And today we're going to be talking about uh, the dietary guidelines, specifically the 2020 to 2025 dietary guidelines, um, as you can tell by the title of the, today's episode. Yeah, today's episode is super exciting because the dietary guidelines are just renewed, or like the 2020 to 2025 guidelines just came out, so we have some updates from the last five years. Yeah, that's pretty funny because um, it came out like super last minute, December of 2020, but... Uh, yeah, it makes sense. Uh, if you kind of remember, 2020 wasn't the best year, so it kind of makes sense it came out kind of last minute. Um, kind of reminds me of all of our college assignments, honestly, just turning everything in the last minute, but it still works at the end. Yeah, so we're going to talk about some of the new improvements or some of the weaknesses, and yeah. And also some things that they've missed out, right, uh, for this year that we may expect, or at least... I prefer for next dietary guidelines for 2025, but that will be later on today's episode. So tune on, tune in for that. But before we get into the dietary guidelines, we're going to talk about um, the article of the week, which is Youth Influencers Promote Unhealthful Foods on Social Media, which is an article from Today's Dietitian. Yeah, so this article was... A very interesting find on our end since it pretty much summarizes how a lot of the major inputs from children um, from like YouTube, for example, uh, often have promoting or often promote unhealthy foods. So it kind of remains or kind of like makes the links like before it was all television where we got or all the children got their food input, right? Like, oh, you got an ad for Cheerios or you got an ad for... Uh, Cocoa Puffs, for example, but uh, the article mentions like something called kid fluencers, where it's like ch- um, children having their parents film them do like a science experiment or celebrate their birthday, for example. I'm sure many of you heard of them. It's just they're very, very popular within people like around the tw- like the four to twelve year old range. Um, have you heard of them, Michelle? Kid fluencers, um, like no. those the kid channels. I've never heard of that term, but um, yeah, there's definitely lots of like popular kids on YouTube and other like social media platforms, and they can definitely be super influential to little kids, especially if their parents aren't watching what they're watching. So yeah, that can be dangerous. Yeah, so it's like um, the article most mentioning that and also how, of course, kids still watch television. 
right? And then they're also watching YouTube on top of that. So it's sort of like a double whammy where on television, you're getting a lot of advertisements from like um, unhealthful food companies. So like you're getting Burger King advertisement, McDonald advertisements towards these children. And then you add on top of YouTube with other children um, often sharing their own foods. Like, oh, look, I got gummy bears here. Oh, look, oh, look I got a McDonald's meal here, right? And it suspects that both of these perpetuates uh, childhood obesity. And that could be one major factor that we are seeing arise in here in the United States. Yeah, I've definitely noticed um, like ads on TV are always promoting unhealthy foods. And now it's expanded to other platforms such as YouTube. Yeah, so it's a, it's a it's kind of like a way the companies, specifically like the McDonald's or General Mills, are trying to get a larger and larger and stronger grip on this demographic, the younger children demographic, so to say. And I'm mentioning YouTube just because obviously all of us use YouTube on a daily basis. It is the second most popular website um, after all, and about um, 80% of families allow their children either that are tw less than 12 years of age, um, they allow them to use YouTube. So you have a huge demographic of people and about 80% of them watch YouTube and about most of them watch uh, with the article term Kidfluencer. So it's a major sort of like gem, so to say, for these companies to try to get their hands on and try to reach out to these demographics. And considering that 35% um, of them use YouTube regularly. So like me me and probably you, Michelle, use YouTube on a regular basis every single day, just trying to watch a YouTube video here and there. And that gives these companies a good opportunity to show them ads every single day, essentially. Yeah, and I can speak on this because I'm someone who grew up on YouTube. Like I watch YouTube as my form of television all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, influencers are definitely the ones who are influencing as it's in their their name because like um these kids like they follow specific people and they like gain their trust and so they're loyal to that person so when that person talks about a specific product they're gonna be um more inclined to buy them rather than just like a general advertisement on tv yeah exactly yes you hit a really good point with the article also mentioning the same thing you did michelle so it's like there's like a psychology of thing uh, where people actually trust influencers more just because they appear like everyday people, right? Like people like you and me. And they could potentially value that more than, say, a more clinical advertising, maybe more professional sort of setting or person, uh, just because it's maybe less relatable to the person. So just by that alone, um, it's another way of like, even amplifying even more it's not just being shown every single day but it's also being shown by people that, that these children actually can potentially trust right yeah exactly like whether it's like they're advertising makeup products like or food like kids are gonna um be influenced by that yes kids are very this is this goes for adults right i was like before that that also applied to adults but considering it is even kids and how they're even more in like prone to being influenced by outside forces it's a really really sensitive area where um, these companies can have a super strong grip right on these kids and that's the theme of this whole, whole article is just that these companies are just getting into our our children's mindset how um, 
they are influencing them. Ooh, my bad, hit the desk. They're influencing them to uh, continue uh, buying their food products. And now with the pandemic, um, more children are spending more time on their screens and watching YouTube and other channels. Including me, by the way. So, but I, think, I don't think that's a, uh, any big surprise. I'm pretty sure that's most of us. So, yeah, that, that's a, that segue is pretty good with the another point too being that uh, this was... This, this was true regardless, even before COVID, right? Like kids still watch YouTube, kids still watch TV, obviously. Um, but even now during the pandemic, um, they're watching it even more, right? Especially since some parents, they still have to go to work in some cases and maybe they can't afford childcare or the children don't have school anymore, right? So they're stuck at home. So a lot of the, the parents are just relying on, or at least to keep them busy, uh, they're relying on just YouTube to just you know, keep them busy, just keep them still and keep them quiet, right? Because we know how children can be very energetic if they don't get their attention. So for right now, YouTube is giving them attention. So um, they're watching these videos more, potentially watching TV more. They're stuck on site all day and even increasing the dosage of these advertisements um, from these companies towards the children um, to even amplifying the effect that it has on them even more. So just to give a little bit of context on how big these channels actually are, uh, one crazy uh, statistic is that the highest paid child, um, so the, they were about eight years old, um, and they raised a whopping $26 million in 2020. I don't even know how that's possible, how an eight-year-old can raise $26 million, but uh, the article mentions that this was in part do it, of course, YouTube ad revenue just by getting I have some videos go up to a billion views. Apparently, I don't know how a video of a birthday's birth, a, a kid's birthday party can get a billion views, but some do. But also like these companies directly sponsoring them, right? Yeah, that is absolutely insane. I wish I was that balling at eight years old. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, it's probably mostly the parents. But yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, the parents are most well, the, the parents would get probably like 99.999% of that money. Um, but if that child wanted to, if they had, well, they can't. But with that money, you can buy some serious stuff. You can get like a Lamborghini probably with that. And that's how you know you really reached it. When you can buy your own personal Lamborghini. Um, with $26 million, you probably can. So, yeah, just to show you how big that these influence or kid influencers actually are. They, just by that money alone, that's pretty serious numbers. So... On top of that too, um, you may be wondering, okay, so I'm sure that's not every single video, right? Kids are showing off unhelpful foods to the audience, right? And of course, it's not every single video. Some kid, some videos are just, uh, you know, birthday celebrations or them playing with toys. But just to give a, a stat to this, um, the researchers that the article mentioned uh, found that about, uh, when they were analyzing the YouTube videos, about 43% of these videos uh, promoted a food or a drink. And of this 43%, about 90% of these videos uh, promoted unhealthful foods. So examples being like fast food, uh, like McDonald's or Burger King um, or candy and soda. So the overwhelming majority of videos that promote food are not really helpful. And almost half of these videos promoted some form of food. So it's a huge, huge um, industry that we're talking about here and it's a very, very 
widespread in this community. And very often these children see um, their favorite child eat uh, unhealthful foods. Yeah, these these companies are really just targeting, um, like they're really honing in on their sponsorships and like targeting kids. Like, have you ever noticed, like if you watch like the same types of channels, like you they they tend to have like the same sponsors and you just hear their ad (laughs) over and over again. (laughs) Audible sponsorships. Yeah. This video is sponsored by Audible. Get your free audiobook. It works eventually, right? Like sometimes they they just talk about it so much, it's like really embedded in your brain. Yeah, they they got me to get an audio audible um, membership at least a while ago. I canceled it now, but it worked on me at least. Just showing audible over and over again. Yeah, my ads have been like mushroom tea and Skillshare (laughs) and Squarespace, Mm -hmm. all that. But like, yeah, yeah, and these are um. Granted, we're, like, we're adults here, right? So we're not as susceptible to be influenced by those ads as, say, like, eight-year-olds. Uh, that's what makes it even more scary that these are eight-year-olds. Like I mentioned before, they're more easily influenced. Um, and you can see that they're more easily influenced just by seeing the average child's diet, right? Um, you can see the effect that this has even today. Just go to your average eight-year-old. They're probably not going to be eating their fruits and vegetables all day. Um, they're definitely not doing that, <laughs> They're most likely. Yeah, exactly. Like... We have the skills to critically think and like analyze if these ads are like making any sense, but they do not. They do not. Yeah, that, exactly. They don't. They don't have the the capacity to critically think through the the ads. Like, hey, does that does that really make sense? Is there really or am I am I really gonna go through like a rainbow? I forgot what was that cereal brand called, Lucky Charms or something, where, like the leprechaun and the rainbow. Oh yeah, I they, forgot that cereal is called. That's a good example of like advertisements targeted towards kids yeah and they're like oh i want a rainbow and i want lucky charms and i want a golden pot of filled with gold right and me and you were like oh man what what's what ad is this This super cringy and like what (laughs) this isn't towards me yeah no offense but i always hated lucky charms (laughs) really yeah they're just so sugary okay well at least when i ate them i liked them but then again that was when i was eight so it kind of goes with the theme, not too surprising. So I probably wouldn't like him now. I see who I'm not lying. I'm not gonna lie. I probably would like him, but <laughs> yeah, marshmallows are just uh, okay. You prefer mushroom? You oh, you prefer mushroom tea, don't you? Huh? Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely. Okay, <laughs> but according to the ads, that's not that's not what they're saying. You mentioned it yourself. <laughs> well, anyways, the solution to all of this um, one possible solution is for the government to regulate junk food advertisements specifically to children yeah so this gets into like a controversial area where it's like should the government regulate such ads right specifically towards children right so like um children are a vulnerable group right and at least me personally i think the government should step in saying like hey you know Maybe you shouldn't be advertising uh, McDonald's, Burger King, uh, gummy worms, all that sort of food towards these children, um, specifically like towards them. Uh, maybe that shouldn't be ethically allowable, but you know, at least with our current system of the free market, uh, that's how it's going right now. So hopefully that will change in the future. Um, probably won't change for quite a while. But because they again, they are a very large business, they are probably worth 
they're, they're probably worth at least like hundreds of billions of dollars, not trillions of dollars. I wouldn't be surprised if they're worth more than a trillion dollars. So it's not going to be as easy um, as it is just snapping a finger um, or convincing people like the audience here uh, to make this sort of change. Yeah, I definitely agree that companies shouldn't be able to advertise this much to children. Um, but we should also keep um, these influencers accountable for doing the same. I know that they make money off of it, but um, they should be responsible for influencing like their audience, which is kind of what we see with like cancel culture and all of that. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that will change. If not, then I mean like... The article does mention also to like kind of a little segue to a minor point, but um, kind of goes a no-brainer. Like children who see these ads, these food ads, uh, they do tend to consume more calories compared to children who don't who see ads unrelated to food. So it does influence them. It's not just a thing that we're just spinning out of our face. Um, the numbers do show like these ads do make a difference when it comes to their diet, right? Which could later on uh, in turn affect their future health, right? So, I don't know, it just, um, it's gonna, it should be changed, but I don't know if our lawmakers um, are going to ever ch- or change it anytime soon. Uh, it is a really huge company, uh, lots of money is at stake, and as, as we know, uh, money has a, a very big sway on what gets done here in America, so... So hopefully you like today's nutrition in the news about uh, kid fluencers uh, affecting the use of uh, unhealthy food patterns through social media. And I think that was a pretty interesting article, if I say so myself. So we're going to quickly go on a quick ad break. And when we come back, we'll go on to the main topic of today's episode being on the new dietary guidelines. This is 22 West Radio. KKJZ HD3 and on the internet at 22westradio.com. Yo, you hearing this? Listen up. We're Jams from Japan, a show that plays songs exclusively from Japan. We showcase all kinds of songs, old, new, and every hit in between. So tune in and buckle up because you're in for a fun ride. Join us on Wednesday, 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on 22S Radio, 22Westmedia.com. Looking for ways to make a little extra cash? Organize a recycling team in your neighborhood where you can go around and collect recyclables and bring them over to the CSUOB ASI Recycling Center where they will pay you for your recyclable items. Our award-winning state-certified recycling facility saves on average the energy to power TV 24-7 for 55 years, as well as 7,400 gallons of gasoline, 213,000 gallons of water, and 520 trees. It's a win-win situation. So gather up your recyclables today and turn them in for that chunk of change that will allow you to splurge enough to turn that burger into a combo. For more information and offering hours, email them at asi-recycling at csulb.edu. And welcome back to the radio show. Um, We are Foodology Radio, and today we're going to be continuing our episode on dietary guidelines. So first we've got to ask a very simple question. Uh, What are the dietary guidelines and what do they do? So 
In summary, the dietary guidelines provide guidance for Americans and also health professionals on choosing a healthy diet and focusing on diet-related chronic diseases that can affect our population. And it does this by advertising to eat healthier and to minimize uh, chronic disease burden later on in life and also trying to do the obvious, uh, more well-known things like limiting um, high sugar foods, high sodium foods, and also high saturated fat foods. Yeah, so basically their goal is to prevent chronic disease and encourage a healthy lifestyle. Yeah, so... Through nutrition. Through nutrition, right. It doesn't mention exercise too much. That's not the main goal of it. Um, It's just uh, through a diet perspective. So how many people actually follow it? Um, If you're my best, if you did my best guess, probably not that many. But uh, to put some numbers into it, um, the way we usually assess how closely a person eats in relation to the USDA guidelines is through what's called the uh, Total Healthy Eating Index. Um, so it's essentially an index from 0 to 100. The closer you are to 100 uh, means the more aligned you are with the USDA guidelines. So like 100 being you eat perfectly with the USDA guidelines, you eat very, very healthy according to them. So from data collected from 2009 up to 2016, it pretty much stayed the same. So the healthy eating index was essentially from 59 to 60. So a pretty high score, Uh, almost a D. So I think that's a pretty good score, uh, at least when it comes to tests. So in context, that's not very high. It's pretty, I mean, it's better than zero, but it could be better. So not many people follow it, but... You know that's that's the that's the aim as of this show is hoping uh, some people can get some higher scores in this, um, aka eating healthier. Yeah, I remember I TA'd for a like intro nutrition class, and um, yeah, one of their assignments was to write about like the dietary guidelines, and like they they were asked like if they even knew what the dietary guidelines were, and like. Not not many of them did. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> what did they think, like, the Maya Pyramid thing was when they went to elementary school? Or, well, they were they were just familiar <laughs> with, like, the basic aspects, right? But, like, okay. not most people aren't really, like, um, following them, like mm-hmm. you said. Um, they, they just don't know, like, what, what they are specifically. Oh, okay. Um, and just for retrospect, uh, my plate was way past then. If you go to a school now, it would be the my plate not the food pyramid anymore um i see when i saw when i was in school i think it was like the stair pyramid or something where a person is climbing up the pyramid or something um i didn't know what it was so i guess i was like them not too long ago but then again i was elementary school but then again that was only like 15 years ago so not too much in the grand scheme of things so so yeah i feel like most of us have like a basic idea of what they are but um more of us need to follow it yeah, so that's hopefully the, the hopefully by the time you finish watching a lot or listening to a lot of episodes, hopefully uh, you'll think of uh, some aspects in healthier. So, what are some strengths of the dietary guidelines? Yeah, so the the dietary guidelines has several strengths actually. So, um, at least with this edition, the 2020-2025 edition, uh, it renews every five years. Uh, the new one will be coming out in 2025. But for this year, um, it one 
strength of it is that it benefits or promotes that plant-based foods should be most of the meal. So most of your plates should be regarding um, plant-based foods like fruits and vegetables actually being about half of your plate and the quarter being about um, grains. Um, and the other quarter should be a protein source. So protein source could be um, like meats or seafood or eggs or like legumes. Uh, the, the guidelines does mention legumes as a protein source. So it's, it's fairly friendly towards plant-based dieters um, or towards uh, plant-based foods, so to say. Yeah, I think this is a very positive change um, in the past few years um, since plant-based diets are growing in popularity and I think it's um, something that a lot of Americans struggle with is getting enough servings of fruits and vegetables so yay for that yeah so like in years past um, at least when it comes to the protein source uh, it was just like meat and eggs I believe and then eventually they started adding um, beans for example Um, so it's Getting more up to date with the science, uh, with the science saying like, oh, most of your meals should be ideally um, plant-based, right? You want to eat lots of fruits and vegetables, grains, try not have too many servings of uh, meat, specifically red meats and like um, eggs, for example. So you can still have them, just, you know, don't go overboard with them. So, but like that goes with any food group, right? So the dietary guidelines does mention that. The dietary guidelines also encourage a variety of fruits and vegetables that should be consumed. Yeah, so that's sort of like a a more of a given sort of thing, but it is is technically a strength of the guidelines. It kind of goes in line with uh, most of your plate being plant-based foods, right? So, and and the third strength of it is um, they finally label starchy vegetables. So vegetables high in calories, for example, or like higher in calories, I should say. So like potatoes... Um, sweet potatoes, um, what is it called? Like pretty much tubers, right? Uh, they're now their own subgroup, right? So they kind of make a distinction between uh, potatoes and broccoli just for the caloric reasons, right? Uh, vegetarian options are, are now available in dietary guidelines. It does give a section towards vegetarians or more focus, I should say, towards vegetarians, um, which I guess goes in line with the guideline being more plant-based friendly. Uh, another one being seafood and nut consumptions are also encouraged. So nuts, of course, having healthy fats and seafood also, like particularly salmon and tuna being a good source of omega-3s. So that's also technically another strength of the guideline. Yeah, so that's important because um, most Americans don't get enough omega-3s. Yeah, so omega-3s specifically, but also really just like healthy fats in general. Right, um, a lot of Americans, uh, a lot of their fat doesn't come from the best sources. A lot of it may be uh, saturated fats, right? Um, and at least in years prior, uh, trans fat, when they were allowed or when they were a lot more ubiquitous when it comes to our food supply. So another strength also being uh, lean or low-fat meats uh, being clearly labeled and like uh, giving examples of those. Um, so. Of course, that goes in line with trying to limit your saturated fat intake. Uh, Typically, the fat found in meats are usually of saturated fat origin. So it's particularly important to try to find lean or low-fat versions of those foods. Yeah, and finally, the last strength of the dietary guidelines are that alternate dairy options are provided. 
So they do mention fortified juices and plant-based milks. Yeah, so this is a, a huge thing when it when it comes to um, plant-based eating is that in prior uh, guidelines, uh, alternate dairy options may or weren't as clearly stated in the guidelines, if at all. So sort of a shift towards allowing more um, calcium sources other than just cow's milk um, to be your option of gaining calcium. So like soy milk is uh, what the guidelines particularly mention, if I remember correctly. So um, even though it may seem like a minor change for some of you, it actually is a huge um, change in direction for the guidelines since historically it's always just been cow's milk. And this is the first time I believe it's actually mentioned um, alternative dairy options. So it's a very good strength to have with uh, the new age when it comes to consumers uh, drinking less and less cow's milk. So I think it's important to mention that. Yeah, so this year has been um, a huge win for the plant-based community. And even the Canadian dietary guidelines included a lot more plant-based options. So, Yeah, the Canadian dietary guidelines is uh, uh, quite different than the USDA guidelines. Um, the Canadian guidelines are a lot more plant-based friendly even right now um, compared to the USDA. But um, of course, we are uh, here in America. So our main focus is on the USDA. And that's what is taught to us in school, um, in American schools at least. Yeah, which is so interesting how we have different dietary guidelines for different countries, even though we're all we all need the same foods. <laughs> yeah, so it, I mean, there's a political aspect of it. Um, I'm sure some politics influence our dietary dietary guidelines. Uh, it's a good book on it called Food Politics. If you're someone in the audience interested in learning more of like the legislative or political aspect of food. Um, I haven't read it yet, but I've been meaning to. Um, I probably will this coming summer. But yeah, it's very, very interesting. But even across the world, they still are more or less, more or less when you really um, simplify it, the same things like fruits and vegetables, whole grains, get some protein sources. Um, it's just some more minor details um, or minor compared to the macro, right? Um, that differ between countries. Right. So, what are some of the weaknesses of the dietary guidelines? Yeah, so, like, as anything, um, there's strengths and weaknesses, right? The USDA guideline isn't the most perfect guideline in the entire world, so there are some flaws to it. Uh, The first flaw being, um, in the fruit category, um, it does include uh, fruit sources such as juices and canned fruit. Um, Juices just being mostly an issue just because it's... um, caloric beverage right you're trying to minimize that and also could have some added sugars to it and canned fruit um, at least specifically with that uh, it's with the sodium content some canned fruits may have a lot of sodium with it but there's also an important thing to note that um, at least with the canned fruit it, the USDA guideline isn't like meant to be like the most perfect guideline in the entire world right it doesn't try to recommend absolute perfect eating it's a guideline for the general population so with that meaning that um, it doesn't try to convince everybody to eat healthily. It just tries to make everybody eat somewhat healthily, right? Because it's more realistic to have Americans uh, have that as their goal rather than like perfect eating fresh fresh fruit and vegetables all the time. Um, you have zero salt, you have zero added sugar, um, right? So, and some people, they may have to eat canned foods, right? Because they may not have fresh fruits, right? So Yeah, so... 
it's a good option if that's all you have access to. Um, so you can get a lot of like vitamins and minerals from juices and canned fruit. But yeah, of course, fresh fruit would be better. Yeah, so I don't know if you want to call that a weakness. It's sort of like a it depends on your personal situation. And you also got to keep in mind the USDA's goal of toward being towards Americans, right? Trying to convince them to eat healthier, not be perfect eating. But if you want to be super scientific about it and exclude all the other contexts around the issue, um, fresh fruits and or fresh fruits and vegetables uh, would be ideal compared to juices and canned fruit, um, at least. Uh, frozen also being a good option. Um, also, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, another weakness being uh, with the grain section. So if you've noted before, I, uh, when I was mentioning the aspects of the plate, I only said grains and not whole grains. So, and that's for a good reason, just because the USDA guidelines just mentions that, um, or only recommends that about 50% of your grains in your diet should be at least whole grains. Um, so theoretically, at least you could eat 50% of your grains just being refined grains like white bread or um, like pizza crust, for example, where ideally it should be 100. But then again, you got to keep in mind, uh, the USDA guideline is meant towards to be the normal people and normal people aren't going to realistically be able to eat 100% whole grains, right? So you yeah. got to keep that in mind. I think it's a, it's a realistic target for most people yeah so again if you want to count that as a weakness sure if you want to be purely scientific about it yeah maybe it is a weakness but when you put it in the context of the real world it's more realistic and it's yeah you should just aim for as much whole grains as possible yeah and it'll be less intimidating for americans be like oh man i only ate like 50 percent of my diet as whole grains right and then the government may say, hey, you're doing a pretty good job. And otherwise, they may think um, if the goal was 100, um, they may be discouraged from eating healthy in the future because like, oh, why am I even trying, right? So, and that's the last thing we want to have, right? So the USDA is trying to avoid doing that. Another weakness may be that um, fatty fish, which is a great source of omega-3s, may not be considered lean. So the dietary guidelines promote lean meats, um, but that excludes um, like healthy fish. Yeah, so like, I don't know, if maybe some people out there in the population would hear like, oh, eat lean meats, right? And people would connect fish with meats, right, as it is. And they may not be wanting to eat salmon or tuna, which may be fatty, um, right? And they may think, oh, it's fatty, so I shouldn't eat it. But uh, sort of like an exception situation here where, yeah, it's fatty, but it's, um, a good source of omega-3s in the USDA Um recommends it regardless of it being fatty or not just because the fat is primarily omega-3s which is uh, what most americans are lacking in their diets so it might be like a contradiction that you might hear but it's a little nuanced pick of it. it may not be as important for some audience or for some people in the audience here but it is worth mentioning and another weakness uh, that is worth mentioning is that the guidelines don't really give enough emphasis on the importance of limiting uh, red meats and processed meats um so like they may say like oh choose um lean meats right but even when it comes to lean uh, red meats or lean processed meats um they still wouldn't be the most ideal uh, uh food choice when it comes to your protein source um then again you also gotta remember it's maybe not supposed to be ideal maybe more realistic but 
maybe somewhere in the, in the guidelines, it would be worth mentioning um, for people reading the guidelines, uh, specifically health professionals, um, where it is talking about like, hey, maybe like your protein source shouldn't be just from red meats or from processed meats, especially. Uh, try to get some uh, non-red meats, like white meats, or try to get some plant-based sources of proteins, especially um, like beans or nuts, um, into your diet rather than just relying on those food sources. And just the main concern being with red meats and processed meats is just primarily being with um, the potential risk of it being associated with just all-cause mortality, so like the chances of dying um, from all causes, right, all-cause mortality. And also um, the risk of it potentially increasing the risk of colorectal cancer um, compared to other protein sources. Um, so that's why, at least in the future editions, um, would be preferable of the USDA noting those uh, risk factors when it comes to eating uh, a large quantity of red meats and processed meats. And lastly, another weakness is that there is no actual scientific evidence to keep promoting three daily servings of dairy. Yeah, so it's like um, there's other sources of calcium when it comes to your diet, right? So like a good example being dark leafy vegetables, um, which would come from like your vegetable sources in the plate. And also, of course, like I mentioned before, the non-dairy sources, so like soy milk um, being a good alternatives or tofu, right? So yeah, it's it, there's like some suspicion that the reason they say three servings of dairy per day it might be just because like the dairy industry uh, constantly keeps on trying to put it or make them put them that put that uh, serving suggestion there. Um, three servings is quite a lot. Like I don't think. Um, yeah, at least here at Cal State Long Beach, like most of my professors, like they always say, like you know, the three servings is kind of excessive. Um, it could be like one or two, maybe like. If you eat enough vegetables, then maybe zero, right? Because you get enough calcium from them. Um, but that's another weakness of the USDA guidelines. Yeah, definitely the dairy industry has some influence. I remember being told growing up to have milk with all of my meals. And yeah, I hated it. <laughs> yeah. So, and then you also get like the... I mean, when you read the USDA guidelines, it says like specifically... Um, a quote from it being, or at least a paraphrase of the quote being like, a healthy diet includes dairy, when the more scientifically accurate statement would be a healthy bi- a healthy diet may include dairy, right? You don't need dairy in your diet. Um, you could get your calcium sources from, like I said before, non-dairy sources um, or dark leafy vegetables. So hopefully in the future, they'll change the wording a little bit. But as it stands right now, um, that would be a weakness of the guidelines. It just not having enough evidence for supporting specifically three servings of dairy. That's a little bit excessive, right? And then, and then you also get like the another issue with some people being lactose intolerant, right? And then you may hear some arguments of like, oh, that that dairy suggestion may actually be um, some form of racism, just because largely African Americans can't drink cow's milk, right? There a large portion of them are lactose intolerant and the guidelines, if if this um, this holds true, uh, would be ignoring that population, right? Like, despite them being lactose intolerant, the guidelines still says, theoretically, at least to that population, hey, still drink it, even though you're lactose intolerant. Yeah. So the dietary guidelines, um, they definitely try to make it more um, culturally culturally inclusive this year, but they did miss out on some things. 
Yeah, specifically there. That's probably the largest weakness in this editions of the dietary guidelines, but hopefully that'll change in the future, at least. So that wraps up some of the strengths and weaknesses of the dietary guidelines. And we're going to go on break real quick. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the changes from 2015. Did you know that more than 20% of students on Cal State campuses experience food insecurity while in college? Cal State Long Beach is doing something to help that. With the Beach Pantry, which is located on the third floor of the Student Union in room 302 and is open Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. and again from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Stop by for some food, snacks, and school supplies. I'm Georgie. And I'm Olivia. And we're Brains Are Sexy Radio. And you're listening to 22 West Radio. And welcome back from the break. So before break, we were talking about some of the weaknesses of the guidelines. So some things we hope to change. But um, and before break, we were also saying what was what has changed from 2015. But uh, a little bit of a uh, I guess change in direction a little bit. So we're first going to talk about what stayed the same actually. So there's actually a few things that stayed the same uh, since 2015. Some of the more I guess less controversial things. So, for example, it being uh, limiting calories from added sugars is still recommended to still do that. Uh, specifically, having 10% or less of your calories coming from added sugars, and also the coffee or caffeine recommendations still uh, remains the same, being with 400 milligrams per day, or about the same as like three or four cups of coffee, I think, or like two to three cups of coffee, I believe. Don't quote me on that. I think it's two. Or maybe three, two or three. I'll just say two or three cups of coffee per day. Uh, another thing to say the same is also the dietary cholesterol being not a significant nutrient concern. So a little bit of, of a misunderstanding with that. It's mostly just with the dietary guidelines mostly shifting their focus towards saturated fats because it's more of a worthwhile investment of your time on trying to change your diet. Um, Cholesterol on your diet, uh, it may actually increase your cholesterol, but it would be very, very minor compared to saturated fats. So really, your main focus should be on that, not on cholesterol. But if you want to be super, super perfectionist, you could focus on it. But that's not the focus of the USDA dietary guidelines, right? So another thing being uh, the same thing, like reducing salt, sugar, and saturated fat intakes. Nothing surprising. Uh, focusing on fruits and vegetables and whole grains. Again, nothing surprising, and prioritizing nutrient-dense foods and cultural aspects of foods. So choosing foods that are higher in nutrition and also choosing foods that uh, align with your own cultural preferences, right? So uh, trying to eat within what you grew up with. So like if you grew up with Chinese food or Mexican food, um, if you like those foods, uh, keep at it. So now that we talked about what to say the same, uh, that was pretty quick just because it's Nothing much to explain there. I'm pretty sure all of us already heard that over and over again. Uh, now it's what changed from 2015. So some of the more interesting stuff, right? What changed? So first being limiting um, uh, high mercury foods or high mercury foods like fish. Um, so specifically when it comes to like fishes or fish higher in the food chains so like fish and swordfish. Um, but then again, not a lot of us here eat that in the USA, but 
Uh, in general, trying to limit your fish, or at least those specific fish, uh, that's one change of the USDA guidelines. Also, they added a section from ages 0 to 24 months, so pretty much like newborns to um, adolescents. Um, and also a new guidelines on breastfeeding and first foods for babies and also introducing high al high allergy foods. That's a bit, kind of a dense section. So before, there wasn't really a section on newborns or adolescent children. It was primarily just focusing on um, adults to older adults. Um, now in the USA guidelines, it gives them a little bit of spotlight now. So that's nice to see because, of course, um, there are still people too and they still need food and they still require nutrition and they still need some advice to give to. So the dietary guidelines included a more um, lifespan approach. So um, nutrition is different in every stage of life. So basically they included um, infants uh, from in infancy and pregnancy. So that's all included as well. Yeah, so also another like noteworthy point being like... Um, dimension or dimension of breastfeeding right so I believe in prior guidelines there wasn't really um, advice on that but uh, breastfeeding has been getting more and more spotlight as of late so the guidelines reflect that and now they actually as we or say what um, dietitians knew for a very long time by now which is uh, breastfeeding would be preferable over formula right there's very unique aspects of breast milk uh, that you can't really get from formula and check out our pregnancy episode for more info on that. Nice, uh, nice shoe in of the episode, Michelle. Nice uh, advertising of our prior episodes. Yeah, go check out the, that episode if you want. Uh, highly recommend. Uh, foodology recommended, right? So, <laughs> foodology recommended. Um, yeah, so the dietary guidelines also mention other diets such as vegetarian and Mediterranean. So, um, many people are vegetarian, so that's uh, across many cultures. And it also includes the Mediterranean diet, which is um, a diet that's known for being uh, very healthy. Yeah, so it's also, again, like the, with the shifting tides in society, gaining higher interest in uh, vegetarianism or Mediterraneanism. Uh, it's important for the guidelines to uh, make a specific section on that. And another change being uh, changes in sustainability um, considerations and also budgetary considerations. So, for example, um, the USDA guidelines now mentions advanced planning. Uh, for some of you, it may be known as meal prepping. Um, incorporation of fresh uh, can or frozen foods. So, depending on your budget, choose which one uh, best fits in it. And also, seasonal and regional availability in your own grocery stores are now mentioned. So... Uh, that's, that's the sustainability aspect of the guidelines, uh, trying to buy foods that are in season uh, to limit resource usage and growing those foods and also regional availability so it doesn't have to ship long distances like if it's coming from a different country. So those are some of the changes from the dietary guidelines since 2015. Um, now we're going to talk about what we hope will be changed for 2025 to 2030. Yeah, so... Um, one major point could be a greater emphasis on a sustainable food supply that is more environmentally conscious and that's more responsible with our climate. So I think this is a, I think I think this is a pretty given um, change that we hope to see in the future, right? We can't have, at least a saying I like to say is that we can't have healthy people when we don't have a planet. So I think this is a change that 
eventually it has to come uh, down the line. If it's 2025, that would be great. Um, if not, it has to be within the next 10 years or 20 years because the climate's getting really, really bad and we need some focus on it uh, from every angle that we can. So hopefully the USDA will include that for next uh, edition of the guidelines. Another change we would like to see is to provide more information um, for plant-based options. So um, we've already seen some of these changes in the 2020 guidelines, but um, I think we can do better. Yeah, we could always do better, right? At least, uh, like, again, uh, like before, um, adding some more plant-based options towards the dairy recommendation, which is the next uh, change um, we hope to see future in the future. Um, changing of the dairy recommendation, not being the three servings per day, which I'm pretty sure nobody does, and I'm pretty sure most health professionals think it's a little bit elevated. Um, but even if it stays at three, at least include more um, dairy options out there. So like um, soy milk, which it already does, but also including like almond milk, coconut milk, which yeah, it may not be like nutritionally complete, but at least the main reason or the main source of nutrition from dairy being um, calcium, at least for a lot of us. Um, also, changing the wording a little bit. So, like I said before, um, the dietary guidelines state a healthy diet includes dairy, implying that you need it. But meanwhile, the science actually says it can include dairy if you want, but you don't absolutely need it. There are other ways of meeting your nutrition needs outside of dairy um, if you do plan it accordingly. Um, so hopefully that wording can change a little bit, try to be a little bit more nuanced, right, um, with that recommendation in the future. So another one also being um, clearer guidelines when it comes to the protein section. So like I said before, uh, the red meat and the processed meats, um, having a little bit more clarity on the USDA guideline, maybe not making that, um, or maybe saying that maybe that shouldn't be your main protein source, try to have some other sources of protein other than those two options, um, like plant-based protein sources like beans, um, lentils, or nuts, or some more white meat or fatty fish sources of protein rather than just um, red meat and processed meat. So hopefully that will change in the future. And another change that could be done in the future, um, at least for health, um, for the general population would be more clarification on fish and emphasis on eating more seafood. Like I said before, it's a little bit uh, contradictory. Like, oh, is it is salmon considered um, a lean meat? And if it isn't, um, you know, should I eat it? And even though it's a fatty, even though it's a fatty meat, but they still recommend it. it can get confusing. So uh, trying to be more clear on uh, fish servings and seafood servings um, per week. Yeah, so that concludes today's episode on dietary guidelines of 2020 and 20 through 2025. So we hope you learned something about the dietary guidelines and go take a look at them after this episode and possibly incorporate the, some of these points into your diet. Yeah, that's the hope from us. So yeah, that concludes the episode. But before that, of course, we got to do the traditional recipe of the week, uh, the weekly recipe that we give to you. Uh, from our kind old hearts. So today we're talking about um, at least the, the, the name of this recipe, uh, perfect oven roasted broccoli. Uh, the most perfect broccoli you will ever have in your entire life, apparently. So 
Uh, this was from budgetbites.com. So that's a good source of recipes if you're interested in finding more recipes. So this recipe essentially is just like oven roasted broccoli. Um, pretty straightforward, very easy to make, but makes broccoli that is very, very delicious. So it's a good way of getting uh, green vegetables if you're not so interested um, in the flavor of normal broccoli. If, try this out. If um, See if you still like it or if you still dislike it. Yeah, perfect. Just in case you didn't know how to roast broccoli. But um, yeah, great way to get more cruciferous vegetables in. Yeah, so for this recipe, you're going to need uh, broccoli, of course. I don't know if you know that. Um, olive oil or any other oil if you want. Um, salt and pepper. Uh, those are the minimums. And you can also add like some spices into it uh, if you ever want to prefer that and give it some more flavor to it and then this should take you about um, 30 minutes to make so five minutes should be about the amount of time you take to cut and prepare everything and then 25 minutes in the oven and then about 30 minutes in total to cook everything so yeah this was a very simple recipe just worth mentioning like again like with the adherence to the guidelines stated a lot of people don't eat enough vegetables um, it's probably just because a lot of people think vegetables need to be eaten really, really plain without any oil, without any salt, uh, without any spices, just steamed or boiled uh, by itself. And we understand that some people may not like that, right? Uh, so if you're one of those people, try this out. Maybe you actually like broccoli after eating it. Yeah, my recommendation is to um, just get a pan and roast a bunch of vegetables like that's what I like doing especially if you're a meal prep type of person um yeah just lay out like broccoli and like sweet t sweet potatoes or something whatever vegetables you want to roast and um you can just do a bunch of them for that whole week yes that's another option that's honestly the way I do it I never use the oven I'm like I don't know why I use the oven just use a, a frying pan but the recipe called for an oven, so just being very, very technical. But this will work just as well with a frying pan. That's how I would do it personally. So, a frying pan would not fit that much broccoli. <laughs> well, any a big pan then? How about that? I don't know the technical word in there. Two but... pounds of broccoli, because that's what the recipe calls for. Okay, well that's just <laughs> the quantity. That makes four. So if you make half a pound of broccoli for like one serving, I'm pretty sure. And that defeats the point of the meal prep. <laughs> well, maybe. Okay, maybe use an oven then. That's probably a lot bigger than any pan will get you. But yeah, that, that's, that's for meal prep. That's just a recipe. You can make it as big or, want, or small as you want. So yeah, hopefully you enjoy it. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, hopefully you enjoyed our episode today on the USDA Dietary Guidelines. Hopefully you learned something new about it. And also the Nutrition in the News article. I think that was a, one of the more interesting articles we read as of late. So, yeah, hopefully you guys enjoyed today's episode from us, Foodology Radio. And tune, on, tune in until next time for our next episode. Thanks for listening. Check out our website at foodologyradio.weebly.com. You can also listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. And check us out on Instagram at CSULB Foodology Radio. Catch us next week on Tuesday at noon.